G'day folks and welcome back to Giving What We Can, where we explore how to use our resources to do the most good. In this episode, I'm joined by Joey Savoy, the CEO and co-founder of Charity Entrepreneurship. Charity Entrepreneurship is a non-profit organization who are working to increase the effectiveness of philanthropy by incubating and accelerating the growth of high-impact charities. Since founding in 2018, they've incubated 18 effective nonprofits, which have reached over 5 million humans and improved the lives of 1.2 million animals. In this episode, Joey provides an overview of charity entrepreneurship, the problems they're working to solve, and how you can help. So without further ado, here's Joey. Joey, welcome. Uh, it'd be great to start off if you could introduce yourself and charity entrepreneurship. Yeah, sure. So I'm Joey Savoy. I'm one of the two co-founders of Charity Entrepreneurship. And Charity Entrepreneurship is basically a incubation program to start new and highly effective charities. So we're mostly interested in helping young founders uh, result in charities that are field leading. So charities that would see, be, say, give all top recommended or something like this uh, in their equivalent area. Amazing. And how did you end up in this position? How did you get here? Yeah, so it's kind of a long story. I guess uh, originally I was working in the charity sector, mostly in measurement and evaluation. Um, had some good experiences, some positive experiences, some negative experiences with less great charities uh, and that sort of thing. That eventually prompted to founding an organization that was mostly focused on outreach, um, kind of focused towards uh, basically getting really great charities that were fantastic from a cost effectiveness and evidence perspective, but maybe less good from a marketing and communications perspective and kind of helping them with that marketing side of stuff. So maybe an academic is a brilliant academic, but they've never made a website before, or they've never applied for a grant before. So we started off helping with that, and that was pretty successful. We got some good funding to kind of these top-level charities, but after talking to these charities and talking to charity evaluators like GiveWell, uh, it kind of became clear that what would be even more effective is if we could actually uh, found one of these charities, kind of be the next generation of highly effective charities. So we decided, okay, let, let's do that. We already had a bit of an established team, so we had some capacity we decided to do a six-month research period where we wanted to find a kind of not just a random idea to found a charity about, but the best idea. So an area that's neglected and, and kind of important and evidence-based, and uh, simultaneously that there wasn't other existing actors kind of already doing a good job. So six months of research later, we came up with an idea for SMS vaccine reminders and started a charity on that. Uh, that went pretty well. That got Givel incubated and got sufficient scale, covered, you know, several million people and kind of increased vaccination rates. But kind of the hidden gem of that project, the the, the real thing that uh, ended up having even more of an impact long term is we had four other ideas uh, that were also very promising. Now, we couldn't run any of these. We were already at 150% capacity, kind of starting a charity ourselves. Uh, but we put them out to the charity community, to the effective altruism community, and said, hey, if someone wants to run with one of these, they will be great. They will be highly impactful, kind of the right execution team. We do think that these can be some of the best charities in the world. Uh, lots of interest, lots of people contacting us, donors wanting to fund it, uh, entrepreneurs kind of wanting to, to do it, but all of them wanted help. Uh, no one was able to kind of pick up the ball and run it the whole way. So... We're not really able to help them. We kind of say sorry. Uh, but fast forward about a year and a half later, and we finally have a bit of spare capacity. So I have a bit of capacity. I go back to some of these talented entrepreneurs, and I say, okay, I'm going to give you the absolute minimal amount of help that we can. We'll give you a 30K grant, uh, which at this point was was not a lot because we're a multi-million dollar organization. Um, and I'll give you one hour a week of mentorship just to help you avoid the most obvious mistakes that, that we made. Um, and that ended up becoming Fortify Health, uh, which is even more successful than Charity Science Health, is, is now Givel incubated and, and well on their way to becoming kind of Givel recommended. So really successful project. And that's really what led to charity entrepreneurship and this incubation program is we thought, well, geez, if this fantastic charity, Fortify Health, 
uh, almost didn't get started because of this tiny amount of support, really not, not a big barrier. Uh, are there other founders out here who could run something really great or, or charities that could exist that might just be short a bit of research hours or uh, a bit of intimidation about finding a co-founder or some of these things that maybe as a large-scale organization uh, we could just solve? So charity entrepreneurship is, is about that. It's about removing as many of those barriers to great charities getting started as we possibly can, whether that's co-founder, whether that's training, whether that's funding barriers, uh, these sort of things, kind of helping charities through those first 12 months, kind of in two months, getting them through their first two years. Wonderful. Can you share some of the projects that have come out of charity entrepreneurship? You've mentioned one, but I'm sure there are many more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're at 18 now. So uh, lots of charities, a few different cause areas. I can, I can give a couple examples. So one project that's had a lot of success is the Lead Elimination Project. So they have basically done uh, lobbying to get rid of lead paint uh, in kind of lower income contexts. So lead paint is banned in many places, uh, but not all places. Uh, and when lead paint is not banned, uh, basically it goes on the walls and then uh, children uh, will say touch the walls or touch uh, flakes that come off the walls or, or dust particles and put their hands in their mouth and this leads to all sorts of long-term health problems. Uh, now there's no real reason to have lead in paint in terms of the, there's not a, a huge financial benefit, there's not a huge uh, effect on the paint, it's just that nobody's really put this at the top of their list. It's, it's kind of a subtle issue, it's preventative, it affects people way down the line. So uh, this had potential for really, really high levels of impact and we helped Two co-founders, you know, they, they met in the program, they both came in kind of interested in global poverty, but not specifically led, uh, just kind of interested in the, the area of having an impact. Uh, and then as they worked more on the project and worked together, they kind of found that, oh, this could be a really good fit, this could be a really impactful charity, and eventually now have, have, have run a very successful project. They have got some policies kind of uh, starting in the, the process of being enacted and, and being implemented by both the producers and the governmental actors uh, to kind of ban this in countries, and of course because it's a policy level intervention, uh, the impact of this is just massive. Uh, so there's a big question, you know, they've had a lot of success in a couple countries, can that replicate to other countries? You know, they're still young, they're only like a year and a half old or two years old, that sort of ballpark. Uh, but yeah, really good success story like that. Uh, pivoting to a different cause area, we've founded a bunch of charities in the animal space. Um, so. One uh, kind of of the earlier charities that we founded is called Fish Welfare Initiative. So, uh, you know, fish, there's a lot of them. They're not super cute and fuzzy, so they're not treated uh, that well, uh, even relative to other farmed animals. And there wasn't a lot of organizations that were dedicated to fish specifically. Uh, so this was an animal org kind of dedicated to fish, researching what would be the biggest welfare issues and, and how might you solve those. So they came to water quality as a big issue. Again, something very subtle, something very invisible, maybe something not obvious from a photo, uh, but does have these kind of huge impacts on the fish and, and very, very cheap uh, to kind of solve uh, this this issue or improve this issue a lot for a just huge number of fish. So now they're working across uh, farms in India to kind of implement uh, higher wallet, water quality standards and, and aeration and kind of improve the welfare uh, of those fish. So yeah, those are two examples, but, but a lot of them are, are doing really great. Uh, you know, I'd say we might start five charities a year and, and a couple of those charities just accelerate to the moon and, and just do fantastic work. Yeah. And how's the experience been going from initially global health to now animal welfare and you've even expanded beyond that? Yeah, so we've covered a bunch of different cause areas. Uh, the ultimate goal is for us to have the most impact, um, but there is a lot of benefits of rotation for us. So there is a limited amount of kind of absorption that a new area can handle for new charities. So if we started five new charities in one area every year, uh, there kind of wouldn't be enough founders to, to run those projects effectively. There wouldn't be as many impactful ideas. So that gives us the benefit of kind of being able to rotate between cause areas. So we started with, I guess, kind of the, the classic cause areas in a lot of ways, the, the animal welfare and the, the global poverty and health identification 
gratification. Uh, but we have explored a little bit beyond that. We've looked into mental health. We've looked into family planning. We're only looking at areas, and we only recommend charities that we think from kind of plausible moral and ethical views are comparable to our top best in other charity areas. So, uh, for instance, mental health, uh, we think that there are some perspectives that make the mental health charities look more effective than the global health charities, and we think there are some perspectives which make the global health charities look more effective, uh, and we're kind of sympathetic to both those. We wouldn't uh, investigate an area or recommend a charity that we don't think we'd kind of be like equally comfortable giving a dollar to. Um, so it does tend to be these areas that are uh, quite measurable, quite quantified, have a lot of evidence base behind them, and, and this sort of thing. So uh, that's, that's kind of a bunch of different areas we've worked on, I guess. Maybe the most abstract area we've worked on is, is effective altruism meta. So stuff kind of like charity entrepreneurship itself would be a meta charity or giving what we can would be a meta charity. Things that are maybe one step removed from the direct impact. Uh, that can be a very exciting area because you can get these very nice amplification effects. And, you know, I do think that, say, charity entrepreneurship uh, has had a lot of impact on these charities getting started. Uh, but it's also an area where you can, uh, you know, think you're doing good and it can be a bit too abstract and, and not actually result in that much impact. So it's an area we're quite cautious about, uh, although we have started, yeah, two charities this most recent year uh, in that area. It'd be great if you could unpack why the kind of core value of uh, charity entrepreneurship is. Like, what's the core proposition? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the core propositions is basically that there are uh, trivial barriers that stop great charities from existing, and we can get rid of them. So that uh, can come in a bunch of different forms, uh, you know, whether that's funding, or whether that's logistical, or whether that's co-founder pairing, or whether that's even idea. I mean, if you think about the traditional process of starting a charity, maybe someone gets inspired by an idea because it affects them personally, um, but maybe they should do several months of research on that, but having the time to do the research, then it takes uh, several months more to register, often between six and 12 months to register, uh, and that's before they've even fundraised a dollar or can even legally accept a dollar. So you might be looking at a 1.5 to 2 year timeline trajectory before you do any impactful work. Now, if we can speed that up and have it happen over two months and kind of remove a lot of these barriers, you know, set up registrations beforehand for people, do a lot of the research when we have a full-time research team, that sort of stuff, uh, it just allows these charities to get started at a much higher rate and uh, kind of knocks off the intimidation factor. I think one other subtle kind of benefit that we provide is the, the psychological factor. So charity entrepreneurship isn't really a career at the top of most people's radars. It's not something that many kids grow up and think about being. Now, of course, every charity that exists was founded at one point. So there, there was uh, kind of a, a founder there, but it's definitely not something that's thought about the same way that for-profit entrepreneurship is thought about or, or maybe other more salient career paths are thought about. So even just putting it on people's radar and saying, hey, this is a career path that you can consider. This is something that's really impactful. Um, and it is something that maybe you don't need to fit as many of the standard stereotypes as, as people would think. I think when people think entrepreneurs, a lot of the time they think, hyper gregarious extroverts uh, who can, you know, talk in front of a stage. A lot of our best entrepreneurs are introverts, they're researchers, they're detail-orientated, they're, they're kind of bringing this analytical rigor uh, to the charity world, uh, not just the communication skills. Often you need one co-founder who's a bit of a strong communicator, uh, but the other co-founders are uh, really diverse. And I think that uh, that's another big kind of value add that we create is just showing more different examples of what a good charity entrepreneur can look at. Uh, when you look at the top founders of Giveable Charities, uh, they're not all fantastic communicators. Some of them are, are quite terrible communicators. <laughs> Some of them are, are you know, much more uh, skilled in other areas. Uh, so that's not the common characteristic. Uh, a drive towards impact, uh, an entrepreneurial kind of mindset in terms of being able to move fast and, and get things done. Uh, these, these sort of things are a lot more important. Looking on the other side of things now, what type of uh, givers, philanthropists, do you think would be interested in supporting charity entrepreneurship? 
Yeah, well, the, the advantage of supporting kind of early stage charitable organizations or, or riskier projects like charity entrepreneurship is the potential expected values is very high. So if you look at a charity in its first year, you know, a small donation matters a lot to that charity. It might be the difference between the charity existing or not. Uh, when you think about a charity that's later stage, often it's more established and often the cost effectiveness balance have kind of narrowed down to a smaller range where you can be more confident uh, in what that range is, but uh, it can be a lower range. You know, the, the first dollar to the Against Malaria Foundation uh, was more important than their 10 millionth dollar. Uh, so when you have a good vetting system, and I do think that that doesn't mean kind of every early stage charity is effective, I think it's still a pretty small number of early stage charities that are really, really impactful. Uh, kind of giving that support uh, to these charities can be super catalytic. It can really kind of give them the the leverage that they need to to then get to the point where they can be evaluated by, say, a large charity evaluator. When I think about charity entrepreneurship itself uh, as an organization, what's the advantage there? I mean, it's basically if you're bought into the model that there can be more effective charities and there can be these barriers removed. Uh, you know, we try to do it extremely cost effectively. Our team is pretty lean uh, and pretty effectiveness oriented. So I think we get quite a lot done for organizational budget level. Um, but in general, it's, it's all based on this premise of there can be more great charities. You can apply analytical mindsets and rigors uh, to charities at the earliest stage and, and to the creation of charities. Uh, and then these charities do end up eventually kind of getting to this point of having these massive impacts. Now, there's been uh, an awareness of the increase in capital avail available within effective altruism. Also, just more broadly, uh, large donors have been quite a big focus of um, philanthropy in general. It'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on the particular value that smaller donors can bring in these cases. Oh, yeah. I'm super sympathetic to smaller donors bringing a ton of value. Uh, so there's like 10 or 15 different traits that I think smaller donors have a huge advantage on uh, versus bigger donors. So one is uh, flexibility. Um, smaller donors can update more rapidly than a bigger donor can. Often bigger donors are making multi-year commitments. Often they have you know entire staff teams invested in a certain area. A smaller donor can react uh, a little bit more to seeing a new piece of evidence or hearing a new thing. I think that can be really beneficial. Obviously, creating funding diversity is very valuable. Uh, bigger donors tend to set their scopes and they tend to kind of set them and, and stick to them. So sometimes we even find areas where, for instance, a big donor has said, here's the top 10 countries we're focusing on, and then the 11th best country is super valuable, but nobody's doing it because uh, kind of people assume that this big donor has covered all the areas, but because the donor has kind of like arbitrarily picked, picked a list of 10 of, of the countries that they're working on, uh, you kind of get these really significant gaps. Uh, obviously, diversity within the charity itself. Uh, so when a charity is beholden to one very large funder, that gives the funder a lot of control. Uh, this can be good in cases where the funder is super impact aligned and, and really cares about very similar things to the charity. Uh, it can be quite bad in areas where the, the funder is not impact aligned or the funder has esoteric interests. You know, a lot of our charities will get pressured from big funders to, to do something less effective or to pivot in uh, directions, you know, that, that, that the media is kind of encouraging at the time or that the foundation happens to be particularly interested in. So smaller donors, because they're less consolidated, because their interests are kind of uh, pluralistic and spread out over a lot of things, uh, don't apply that same pressure. And that can let the charity be a lot more impactful that way. So yeah, I think I think there's just tons of benefits to small donors, e even if there are, you know, a few mega donors that are giving a ton of capital. Uh, basically, every healthy charitable ecosystem has uh, donors at incremental stages of, of size. Um, smaller donors tend to invest more in smaller projects. Um, so that makes a big difference too. 
lots of big donors have a minimum size requirement. So when I'm thinking about early stage projects from charity entrepreneurship's perspective, we might have a big donor who's very interested in health policy, but they might only consider charities once their revenue's at a million dollars a year. Um, that makes a lot of sense for them. They can only evaluate so many charities and only consider so many options. So, uh, you know, why not uh, kind of set this minimum standard and, and spend their time on charities that can absorb a lot of funding? On the other hand, it does mean that there's this valley of death for smaller scale organizations that are sub a million dollars of funding doing really great work, but maybe haven't got to the point where they even can be evaluated or can be considered by the bigger actors. So yeah, I think smaller donors are yeah, super valuable in a, in a whole bunch of ways. Now we've talked a lot about uh, effectiveness uh, throughout this so far. I'd love if you could just take a step back and actually just what would be your pitch to someone who's maybe hearing this idea that there is effectiveness in charities and that's something you could measure and evaluate and aim for. So I guess concept of effectiveness, you know, can be cross-applied to everything outside of charity. You know, there can be some products that are better than other products. There can be, you know, some some actions that are better than other actions. And if you think about any complex situation, you know, say you're buying a house or something like that, uh, there's different variables that kind of factor into one house maybe being a better deal than another house. And there's market efficiencies and, and this sort of thing. I think the same thing applies when it comes to, to charitable actions. So although kind of intuitively, maybe many different charities are trying to do the best job, you know, like businesses or, or like any product, uh, you know, there are going to be some that are going to overperform. There are going to be some that are going to be really fantastic. You know, sometimes two sets of headphones might be the same price on Amazon, but one might give you 10 times better sound quality. Uh, the same thing can happen from the charitable world uh, to charities that are focused on the, the main kind of goal of doing good. One might just be a lot better at that. And that can be for this huge variety of reasons. You know, sometimes it's execution efficiency, like a charity just, you know, does more for the dollars it gets. It kind of prioritizes better and, and has a sharper focus. One can be cause area selection. So, some areas are just inherently a bit more neglected. You know, we talked about uh, lead elimination as an example. There, there's no lobby that, that's in favor of lead. So it's, it's a relatively easy issue to get political traction on. Uh, if you look at other issues where maybe there is a big lobby or, you know, it's something partisan where there's, you know, kind of uh, different, different political views on it, that can be a lot harder. So it can be a lot harder to kind of get this effectiveness, uh, even for two actors that are both equally smart, equally talented, but one's working just on a much easier issue, a much more tractable issue than, than another issue. So... Yeah, we, we do tend to think that charities uh, can differ quite dramatically. Uh, whenever we calculate it, and we, we use a bunch of different kind of methodologies of looking at impact, but uh, yeah, whatever methodology you look at, there does tend to be variance. There does tend to be kind of people at the top of the bell curve and then people at the bottom of the bell curve in terms of uh, the distribution of impact. Some charities are just having a lot of impact. Some charities are kind of in the middle, and, and some charities are not having that much impact or even negative impact occasionally. You've been working in the charitable sector for quite a while now and charity entrepreneurship itself. Um, what are some of the surprising things you've learned uh, that you weren't really expecting? Oh man, there's so many. I mean, one of the most surprising things is where charities fail to have an impact isn't where they think they are going to fail to have an impact. So I think most charities and, and even most donors a lot of the time are thinking about size. They're thinking about, will this charity get enough funding to survive? Will this charity be able to hire the staff it requires? Uh, most charities uh, don't, don't die that way. Uh, most, or at least most charities don't fail to have an impact that way. Most charities kind of uh, struggle along, continuing to exist, you know, have staff, have operations, that sort of thing, but just aren't creating that much impact. Uh, so... We break down our training program into two sections. One is what we call kind of fuel, the, the getting to the place that you want to go. And the other we describe as direction. Uh, so actually picking the right destination. And the direction part is way, way harder than the fuel part. Uh, you know, hiring, getting funding, this sort of thing, it, it's very important, but it's only important if you're driving in the right direction. Uh, so we spend a lot of time talking to charities about how you're actually going to measure your impact, how you actually be confident that step A in fact leads to step B, which in fact leads to impact uh, and this sort of thing. This is a, a really challenging thing for the charity sector as a whole. 
uh, you know, it's not like the for-profit sector where if you're not making money, it's kind of obvious and, and you, you fall apart. Uh, if you're very good at fundraising, but you're not that good at making an impact, uh, you can exist for a really long time. Uh, there's, there's not the same mechanisms here. And this is improving a little bit with charity valuation and kind of uh, givers that are thinking a little bit more about the impact of an organization, but it's still a fairly small part of the philanthropic community. So there can be a lot of charities that, yeah, maybe have an excellent website, but just aren't doing that much. So that's kind of uh, a surprising realization. Um, another surprising realization is just how much analytical rigor, data, um, kind of the, the research matters. Uh, so you might think that, you know, it's really important that someone has, you know, a PhD and, and 55 years of experience in an area. Uh, but it turns out if they have a PhD and 55 years of experience, but in the wrong area, uh, they're just not going to have that much impact. Uh, so a lot of our charities and a lot of the top Gibble charities, you know, they don't necessarily start with a domain expert. Uh, they, they often start with a really talented generalist who really wants to make a difference in the world and then can kind of like uh, become passionate about the area that they get invested in. So our co-founders for LED or the co-founder of the Against Malaria Foundation, it wasn't like they, they woke up one day and they were like, oh, malaria is the only thing I care about in the world. It was more like they, they looked at the evidence, they looked at the data, they, they kind of went evaluative about it and thought, okay, at a higher level, uh, saving lives is what I care about or making a difference is what I care about. What's the best way to do that? Oh, malaria is a, a really good way to do that. It has kind of these properties that, that could make it a really good charitable organization to found. Let's work on that. And let's not to say that, you know, someone who's running a malaria charity isn't passionate about malaria. They, they are super passionate. They get more passionate as they work longer on the issue and that sort of thing. But I think a lot of people imagine that the passion comes first and then the charity comes second. And uh, actually swapping that makes a lot of sense where you kind of do the evaluative research, come up with some options, and then become passionate about that option because it can have such this huge impact. So mentioned earlier that, you know, we got into vaccinations, uh, you know, none of us uh, were born passionate about vaccinations. It was it was the research, it was the, the the evidence that made that compelling, that made that exciting of, wow, there is this big gap in vaccination and we can solve it with a two cent text message. That just seems incredibly impactful. Um, and then you kind of get into that. So that's a, that's a really cool thing. And I think that sometimes people uh, miss that when thinking about charities, that it's really this kind of uh, research-based academic thing, plus this really strong co-founder commitment to doing the most good, even when it's a hard thing to do, um, and having an impact that way. Yeah, let's talk about bottlenecks now. So there might be some causes or focus areas that seem to be typically bottlenecked by money, others by talent, others by research, and many other things. I'd love to see the way you see this landscape of different bottlenecks. Yeah, great. This is one of my hobby horses that I uh, think about all the time and talk about all the time. I think a mistake a lot of people do is they take really generalized heuristics, really generalized kind of principles when thinking about this. So they might think like, oh, you know, there's a big funder in global poverty, thus all global poverty is overfunded. And, you know, it's, it's uh, it sounds silly when I say it that way, but th that is kind of a, a, a thought that comes to a lot of people's minds. And I think the more you investigate, the more you find that there are uh, different bottlenecks at different subsectors of it. So say we take the global health and development sector, right? Uh, GiveWell, you know, has a bunch of funding. They're, they're kind of really scaling up these large-scale charities, and they might say, you know, we're really looking for, for high-impact opportunities. Uh, on the flip side, GiveWell does have a, a minimum size before they start considering charities. So if you look at uh, GiveWell-esque recommended charities that are sub $1 million a year spend, uh, they might be incredibly funding bottlenecked. It might not actually be the talent that they're looking for. It might actually be the funding and support. So I guess the, the short answer is you have to go really nuanced to actually find where exactly the bottlenecks are. I mean, often it is talent. Um, sometimes it's something completely different. I mean, I like having the factor, what, I, what we describe as a limiting factor analysis. What, what is the first thing that's going to bottleneck or, or limit your organization from growth? And very rarely is it, um, you know, you're going to solve the whole problem, like you're going to solve malaria. It's almost never the problem size. That That's never it. 
Uh, sometimes it's the funding, uh, particularly funding in slightly weirder or slightly newer areas. You know, mental health, for example, I would say funding is the bottleneck across the board, basically. Every scale of mental health charity, uh, I am most concerned about uh, funding as opposed to talent or entrepreneurs or ideas. I think there's lots of all those things. The funding's the the, the kind of challenge. Uh, if you look at something like global poverty, maybe in the small scale, it's funding. Maybe in the bigger scale, it's entrepreneurial talent and, and the senior staff talent that can be hired to those organizations. Maybe in the animal space, you know, it's a pretty well-funded space all throughout the board. Maybe it's more about a talent uh, bottleneck. It's, you know, kind of finding the right people and, and finding senior staff especially uh, that can kind of scale organizations to the next level. So, yeah, breaks down by cause area, breaks down even by sub-size of a charitable organization uh, within that cause area uh, and ends up having a lot of nuance. I would say that regardless of someone's skill sets, you can probably find an area that is bottlenecked by the thing that you're trying to build. So if you're thinking like, oh, I want a career in X cause area, there probably is a spot where your career is going to be the, the main capping feature and you can kind of get the difference. When we look at charity entrepreneurship, our program, uh, it does tend to be entrepreneurs. Uh, we tend to have enough funding to, to support more charities. We tend to have enough ideas to support more charities. Uh, it, it's either the entrepreneurs or maybe us hiring outreach staff who can then outreach to more entrepreneurs. That tends to be the kind of limiting factor. We never uh, kind of have a really great entrepreneur and are not able to kind of like fit them in the cohort. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's that's from the entrepreneur side perspective. And I think from every cause area perspective, you're going to be able to find kind of different nuances. So yeah, if you're interested in global poverty and you're a funder, I would say look at small-scale global poverty uh, actions. If you're interested in global poverty and you're a looking to change career paths, I would say think about uh, what the bottlenecks are, maybe with the bigger organizations, whether that's senior staff or fundraising staff, or, or whether that's at the very early stage, at the entrepreneurial stage, where we're kind of looking for founders. Um, so yeah. Uh, bottlenecks everywhere, depending on the uh, the specific cause area and the specific person skill set. Perfect. Love it. Uh, well, not the bottlenecks. But, <laughs> but yeah. the, but the There's analysis. lots of work to be done. There's yeah. lots of problems to be solved. That's at least the thing we don't have to worry about too much, running out of problems. Yeah. What mistakes do you notice people uh, make when they first come into this space uh, thinking about effectiveness? Hmm. That's interesting. So, I guess there's a lot of different things that can kind of go wrong when someone first thinks about effectiveness. I think uh, most people kind of come in with a, maybe a very broad definition of effectiveness. And then as they like learn a little bit more, that definition kind of narrows down. So maybe they'll think like, oh yeah, there's a hundred different ways of charities to be effective. And then they learn that, oh, there's actually some cross comparable metrics. Maybe we can actually compare a lot of charities on kind of the the DALI metric or, or the subjective well-being metric or some sort of cross-applicable thing. And I think that's kind of like a useful process and it's a process that a lot of people go through, but maybe is uh, something that people make a mistake of uh, at the beginning. Maybe they think that like, you know, there's a hundred equal ways to, to measure good. And then as you kind of look into those ways, a few of the ways to measure good look really compelling and, and actually kind of hold up to more scrutiny and a few of the ways don't. Uh, that being said, I do think you can go too far and kind of like use a very specific analytical model and kind of like uh, bet your whole farm on, on kind of uh, one spreadsheet that, that's maybe a bit speculative. And that that uh, uh, seems like a mistake as well. But there definitely are a collection of methodologies that if they start pointing in the right direction, so say you're doing something like a cost check analysis and a literature review and synthesizing the expert opinion, and those are all pointing towards something being a good idea, you know, that, that starts to look really robust and really important. So I guess uh, starting with too many perspectives and then maybe narrowing down to, to too few perspectives and <laughs> kind of keeping that range of can we find a convergence of multiple tools that have consistently yielded good results in the past uh, and then do those uh, then predict what are good results in the future when it comes to effectiveness or, or charity. Yeah, the golden mean of effectiveness mindset. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
Speaking of mindset, uh, it'd be great to hear about something that has been quite consequential that you've changed your mind about. Oh, man. Um, there's a lot of things. I, the first one that comes to mind is just how big a role altruism is in my life. Um, so I think when I first learned about maybe the problems of the world, you know, stuff like global poverty, stuff like factory farming, kind of like really serious problems, hit me pretty hard, as it does most people. And I think many people, uh, you know, maybe it softens uh, over time, and I think it did uh, for me as well. But then when I met a more engaged community, you know, people who at the time were also very concerned about this sort of thing, thought that it was highly important and thought that they wanted to make it a big part of their life, I think that was quite inspiring for me to kind of continually escalate uh, how big a part of my life it is. Uh, and now it's very significant. You know, it's my primary consideration when I'm thinking about, uh, you know, picking a career or kind of making a decision in my, in my life, uh, kind of this, like, uh, I, I like to frame it as uh, it, it is a life purpose uh, causing the most impact in the world. And I think that this is a, a really exciting thing that maybe isn't talked about enough, but is this kind of like high level of intensity and making altruism really significant and really meaningful and, and kind of this the, the main part of your life. I think it can be uh, both happiness inducing, but, you know, doing good, you know, it never ends. There, there, there is always more good that can be done. There's always more opportunities. So I think maybe that's something that has kind of gradually happened, but just become more and more significant in terms of altruism as a, a central purpose or, or a central part of my life. Amazing. Um, so finally, if you were given a billion dollars uh, to spend as you would like, uh, how would you approach spending that? And what are some of the ideas that come to mind already? Yeah, interesting. Uh, so it's a tough challenge. I mean, funding deployment is uh, not easy, especially at that sort of level of scale. So I think the first thing is I'd be patient. Um, I wouldn't necessarily give it, uh, you know, all in the first month or something like that. I think probably there's certain organizations that are really impactful, but you'd need to give them some time to ramp up. So when I think about a lot of the small scale charities that I work with, uh, you know, maybe they could use, you know, a hundred thousand dollar donation or something like this, but they probably couldn't absorb 10 million uh, effectively in terms of actually utilizing that and actually making intelligent decisions kind of as they scale to that level of growth. But uh, setting up those sort of ecosystems, I think I would look at kind of the different funding gaps and, and different places that exist. So I mentioned mental health as an area that's pretty underfunded across the board. So if there was a fund that was set up that was kind of like a small-scale funding mental health uh, kind of avenue and then like a mid-scale funding for mental health, large-scale funding for mental health, that seems really valuable. Filling up that small-scale poverty funding gap, that seems really valuable. So I think there's a whole bunch of things like that that could be kind of distributed when you think about funding. I think there is room for more meta-projects uh, that exist, uh, especially in kind of the, the near-termist movement-building space. So whether that's global poverty or the animal space, uh, you know, there just hasn't been a lot of projects that are kind of uh, taking a step more remote and then thinking about how to have an impact on whether it's people's careers or setting up charities. You know, often I've thought about parallel charity entrepreneurships. Uh, we've really kind of like concretized a path. Uh, there, there is now a clear kind of way that people can go from just hearing about charity entrepreneurship as a career path to hopefully successfully executing it and starting a fantastic charity. I think you could set up orgs like that for other career paths too. So, you know, what if someone is very policy focused and wants to have a huge impact? Uh, what if someone wants to work in the professional sector and wants to have a huge impact? Uh, you know, we could have kind of training programs or advisory programs uh, for a lot of different career paths, uh, particularly career paths that can absorb a large number of dedicated and altruistic people. So that seems particularly appealing to me. Um, yeah, I wonder what else I would do in that sort of ballpark. I mean, a billion dollars is a lot, so you could do all sorts of interesting kind of investments and setups there. Um, I think definitely some talent and capacity training uh, across the globe. So 
the EA movement is great, uh, but it does uh, tend to be a bit kind of uh, London focused. <laughs> is, is what I would say. Uh, a bit focused on you know five or six different cities. Uh, there's a lot of different cities. I think that if we're talking about translation, or if we're talking about kind of like communication, I think a lot of these ideas are, are universally applicable. You know, you imagine something like a documentary or a mainstream uh, kind of piece of information that describes uh, charity evaluation and the idea that some charities can be more effective than others. Uh, that sort of thing seems like it could be incredibly meaningful and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, I think there's lots of uh, lots of kind of open projects and lots of exciting things that could be done with that. Yeah. And people who are watching or listening to this, is there anything you would like to ask of them after hearing this? Yeah, so I guess the, the top thing that comes to mind to me is thinking about charity entrepreneurship and thinking about entrepreneurs. You know, uh, this is a career path that's not super considered by people. A uh, good portion of our entrepreneurs uh, didn't think that it would necessarily be a good fit for them. You know, that didn't immediately strike them as, oh my God, this is definitely a fit. Uh, they took some research and they, you know, did the quiz on our website and were like, hey, this actually, you know, does actually share a lot of my characteristics. So I guess that'd be my top thing, you know, put this on the radar of yourself and put this on the radar of people who you know who might be a good fit for kind of founding a charity. I think it is a really incredibly impactful career path and can lead to a lot of these kind of top organizations that, that end up coming to the world. They all had to get started at one point and uh, maybe more people are fit for charity entrepreneurship than they actively think they are. So we have tons of resources on our website in terms of, uh, helping people kind of assess that fit. And we really uh, do want people to, to to have a sense and for it to be really thrilling as a career path and kind of we offer the support there. So that would be the top thing to do is, is consider that. And then, yeah, maybe also just something, uh, kind of an encouragement about all the good that you can do, uh, you know, even as a small donor or even as a donor who's kind of working around these big actors. I think that there's just an incredible amount of impact that's still on the table. Uh, it's not like we have solved uh, these problems. You know, there's still huge issues. They, they can still require a lot of talent, a lot of time, a lot of money. And I think that there's a lot of ways to usefully contribute if you're strategic and open-minded about it. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to all the charity entrepreneurship has ahead. Great. Yeah. Thank you for, for having me. It was really great to talk about all these topics and really fun to chat about them all. Thanks for lending me your ears for the duration of this episode. I hope you found it to be insightful. Don't forget to check out givingwhatwecan.org, where you can find our research on high-impact causes, donate to highly effective charities, and join our community of compassionate people. Finally, if someone you know will get value from this episode, why not share it with them? And until next time, keep on doing good. Good.